RPC Radio. Hello and welcome to Money Covered, a podcast from RPC aimed at those dealing with complaints and claims in the financial services sector and risk managers within that sector. My name is Rachel Healy. I am one of the co-hosts on this podcast and we'll be talking to some guests about key developments in the financial services area over the last month. The podcast will discuss topical issues of relevance to those dealing with complaints and claims against FCA regulated entities such as IFAs, asset managers, SIPs and brokers, TPR regulated entities, including pension trustees, as well as issues for offshore professionals and accountants. With a lot of ground to cover, I welcome our guests to the podcast today. Welcome to Karina McFadden, a returning guest, and Zoe Meligari as our guests on the podcast today the 27th of January 2022, being our first podcast of 2022, and while we continue to rate the outcome of Sue Gray's report on Partygate. Today's focus is going to be first on pure legal and interest-earning mortgage claims, and then we turn to the FCA's consultation on changes to the appointed representative regime. But before turning to Karina and Zoe, It's worth also briefly covering some other topics as particular highlights for listeners over the end of last year in December 2021 and January 2022. So by far the biggest news was the FCA's DSCEO letter just before Christmas, saying that it will start a consultation before the end of March 2022 into a consumer redress scheme for defined benefit transfers from the British Steel Pension Scheme. Last week, it also emerged that the FCA had issued a survey to the industry collating data relevant to that proposed consumer redress scheme or Section 404. For listeners interested in this topic, please see David Allenson's last podcast on this, where he actually predicted this very next step from the FCA. The FCA has issued plans to strengthen the rules on high risk investments including improving risk warnings. We've also had several announcements from the FOS, including measures on how it intends to deal with its ever-increasing backlog, as well as its plans for 2022-2023, where it anticipates having to deal with 177,000 new complaints, but at the same time resolving 210,500. Our experience of the FOS is that it has definitely ramped up issuing decisions at both investigator and ombudsman level over the last eight weeks or so. We've also had the FCA's consultation on the introduction of a new consumer duty due to come into effect in April 2023. Although the duty will not be directly actionable as a rule breach by way of a civil claim, it is seen as introducing a heightened duty for activities caught by it, which may be particularly relevant to FOS. We've also had consultation on changes to the regulation of the insolvency profession with proposals to regulate firms, not just individuals, a new enhanced requirements regime and a public register of licensed individuals and firms. The government also backtracked on its proposals for mandatory professional indemnity cover for tax advisors. So a busy end to 2021 and start to 2022, but let's get stuck into our two topics for today. 
and welcome back, first of all, Karina, to the podcast. You're picking up pure legal and claims involving the sale of interest-only mortgages. So this was a topic we looked at last year. So first of all, can you remind listeners what kind of claims pure legal were bringing, who those claims were against, and the crux of the allegations that they were making? Morning, Rachel. So the claims that we were seeing related to interest-only mortgages mainly entered into prior to the financial crash in 2009. Uh, we're aware that Pure Legal were also dealing with a variety of other matters, such as cavity wall claims, secret commission claims, and data breach claims. So in terms of the interest-only mortgage claims, the usual allegations made by Pure Legal's clients were that the mortgage broker failed to advise the claimant of the need for a suitable repayment vehicle or to advise the claimant to enter into the ca- an interest-only mortgage when a capital re- repayment mortgage would have been more appropriate for their needs, or that the broker failed to ensure that the claimants had a suitable repayment vehicle in place in order to pay the outstanding capital at the end of the term of the mortgage. So these interest-only mortgage claims that we were seeing were being brought against the whole spectrum of the broker industry, from one-man band advisors to the largest broker networks in the country. And we would usually see these claimants looking to claim uh, two heads of loss. So one of those was the cumulative interest that they paid to their lender over the course of their recommended interest-only mortgage, less the cumulative interest that they were saying they would have paid under a hypothetical capital repayment mortgage. And then in addition, they were looking to also claim the amount by which the capital sum that they said that they would have paid, which would reduced under their counterfactual capital repayment mortgage. So from our perspective, these claims had been problematic from the start in just about every respect. The evidence and support of the broker's alleged breach of duty, breach of duty was poor, causation was poorly pleaded and sometimes ignored entirely, and the capital loss being claimed was clearly irrecoverable. In addition, it was also clear that these claims had been brought entirely out of time. So the primary limitation period, so that's the six-year period, had long expired, as it that clearly commenced when the mortgage was entered into. Because of that, the claimants were looking to rely on the secondary three-year limitation period found in Section 14A of the Limitation Act, which starts to run from the date when the claimant has the knowledge required for bringing in action in damages, meaning that when they had material facts about the damage on which their claim was based. So it was these claimants' position that they didn't require that knowledge until recently, often having seen an online advertising campaign regarding interest-only mortgages or having received expert advice or legal advice saying that they had a good claim. However, the existing case law on Section 14 and date of knowledge didn't actually support their position. So you mentioned there some of the issues as we saw them with the claims being brought by Pure Legal. Um, But what did the court think of these claims? Before Pure Legal went into administration, there were a number of judgments that were handed down by the court that were helpful to the defendant mortgage brokers. The most significant of these was perhaps the case of Ross and Atanta handed down by the High Court in March last year. So this was a strikeout application brought by the defendant broker, and although the application itself wasn't successful, the judge found that the claimants in that case couldn't claim for the capital sum in addition to the difference in interest on the different types of mortgage products. So this was a significant blow to these interest-only mortgage claims as the vast proportion of the sum being claimed by these claimants, so often around about 80% of the value of the claim, was the capital loss element. So there then followed a number of county court hearings that had judgment handed down in the defendant's favour. 
So the first of these was the trial of Colborne and Albany Park Limited. And the judge in Colborne found that the claimants had knowledge, so this is for the purpose of Section 14A limitation, of material facts from the outset of entering into the mortgage as they'd committed themselves to an interest-only mortgage, which meant that the capital sum would not reduce and that they'd be liable to pay the capital sum in full at the end of the mortgage term. And there was no viable repayment vehicle in place either. There then followed a number of successful strikeout applications brought by defendants in these claims. One of those judgments was handed down just before Pure Legal actually went into administration in October 2021 in the matter of White and Mortgage Intelligence Limited. The judge in White said that he had absolutely no hesitation in concluding that the claimants had no prospects of overcoming the limitation issues, and he agreed with the defendant's assertion that the claimant's relevant knowledge was acquired more than three years before the claim was brought. Principally, the judge in White was of the view that the claimants would have had salient details regarding the mortgage when it was originally incepted as long ago as 2005, as had been in the position in Colborne. In addition, the judge held that the claimants were deemed to have constructive knowledge of the correspondence received from their lender. So that's things like mortgage statements, correspondence regarding um, lending holidays, even if they didn't actually read them. And that, that such constructive knowledge was sufficient to set the clock running for Section 14A purposes. The judge also in White went so far as to say that if he'd not actually struck out the claim in its entirety, then he would have also partially struck out the capital loss. As even though this was over six months since Ross and Atanta had been handed down, Pure Legal was still looking to recover that capital loss. Thank you, Karina. And very modest there, not to mention the fact that White was your case as well. You also mentioned the pure legals administration. So that took place in November last year. So what do we know are the reasons for that administration? Pure legal were placed into administration following an application made by Novitas Loans, who we understand were funding the disbursements for pure legals claims. So that's things like court fees and expert fees. So the administration was ordered by the High Court on the 2nd of November last year, and it relates to eight businesses within the pure group. So the administrators who have been appointed are three individuals at Kroll Advisory Limited, and due to SRA regulations and the associated practical obstacles and the lack of funding, it was not possible for the administrators to trade pure legal in administration. So the administrator's statement of proposals um, that can be found on Companies House is dated the um, 15th of November from last year, and it does give us some insight as to the background of pure legal's collapse. So the statement says that legal costs lender Novitas was owed around 1.85 million by mid-October after three loan facilities all expired earlier that year without repayment. Pure Business Group also owed 6.1 million to Perspective Investment Fund Vehicle Limited, which had secured all monies due under a master facility agreement from 2017. So these lenders each issued formal demands to Pure Legal in October for repayment of their outstanding liabilities. So it's following a failure to satisfy these demands that the application was made to the High Court seeking an order for administration. The administrator's statement also indicates that both Novitas and Perspective should be repaid in full, as should a third lender, Close Invoice Finance Limited. Close Invoice Finance had cross-guaranteed a coronavirus business interruption loan scheme loan to Pure Business Group back in October 2020. The administrator's statement also indicates that trouble had actually been brewing at Pure Legal for some time. So the advisory team at Kroll were first instructed by Close Brothers in January of last year in respect of Novitas's exposure to Pure Legal. 
and they instructed Crowe in March 2020 to undertake various financial reviews. Crowe were then commissioned by Novitas in June 2021 to provide another report regarding Pure Group's work in progress, as well as any challenges that might be faced in converting that WIP into cash. It's clear that Crowe gave Pure Legal the opportunity to put forward an alternative strategy to administration in October, but apparently none was forthcoming. The administrator's report also indicates that they explored alternatives to administration before that process was embarked upon, including considering whether they should agree to an SRA intervention, but that was discarded as the idea to pursue. So following the administration of Pure Legal, what does that mean for the customers? And also what does it mean for the mortgage brokers facing those claims? So for the customers of Pure Legal, so this is the claimants for these claims, the fact that the Pure Legal has gone into administration doesn't mean that any live claims have come to an end. If there are live claims, those claimants will need to instruct alternative legal representation if they want legal advices to assist them in bringing those claims to a close. Pure Legal's files and therefore also their work in progress are said to have a book value of about £46 million. And we understand that they're in the process of being transferred out to three firms by Recovery First. We understand that Clear Law, who are a law firm based in Manchester, is one of those firms. And their website provides some initial guidance to former Pure Legal clients and appears to focus on whether these claims have been brought in time. There's a section on Clear Law's website for mortgage selling claims in which they highlight that Pure Legal have been in the legal news in recent months, with two cases have been dismissed because they were out of time. So Pure Legal's administration doesn't extinguish any liabilities that the claimants have as well for any costs that might be owing to defendant brokers in these claims. So that would relate to any claims that might have come to an end, but the costs had yet to be resolved as at the date of the administration. In terms of the mortgage brokers facing these claims, These brokers and their PI insurers have been inundated with interest-only mortgage litigation, predominantly having been brought by Pure Legal. So it's hoped that Pure Legal's demise will see any existing and ongoing claims coming to a swift conclusion. We have been clear from the start that these were bad claims, both in terms of the allegations that were being levelled against brokers regarding the appropriateness of the loans and the fact that the claims were being brought entirely out of time. As such, it's also hoped that no new solicitors will be taking on Pure Legal's mantle in bringing any new interest-only mortgage claims. So you gave us a little bit of an insight there, Karina, into where you think this is going, but can you give us any further thoughts looking into your crystal ball as what do you think will happen next and why? So we've seen some firms advertising to take on Pure Legal's clients seemingly for the purpose of suing Pure Legal itself. Although it's far from clear at this stage on what basis any such claims could be progressed, we have seen reference to pure legal failing to progress cases and worries about potential liabilities to pay disbursement funding loans. Pure legal's collapse may also serve as a lesson for any litigation funders looking to fund litigation such as this in the future. Indeed, the third party funder in the pure legal proceedings, Novitas, has withdrawn from the third party funding market entirely. It's hoped this that may therefore have a knock-on effect and lead to fewer spurious claims being brought more generally in this sector. Thank you, Karina. I agree that hopefully this does put a stop to those spurious claims. And in turn, hopefully gives a little bit of a respite for the mortgage broker market that has been hard hit as a result of these pure legal claims over the last few years, as you mentioned. Um, so now we turn to Zoe and welcome to the podcast for the first time. Um, You're going to talk us through the consultation on the appointed representative regime, but for listeners new to the area, um, 
Can you first of all let us know what an appointed representative is, what a principal is, who is the other part to that relationship, and why this is such an important relationship when it comes to financial services? So an appointed representative, so an AR, is a firm or an individual who carries out regulated activities such as arranging mortgages or advising on investments on behalf of another firm that the FCA directly authorises, which is known as the AR's principle. Under the Financial Services and Markets Act 2000, no one can carry out regulated activities unless they are authorised by the FCA or are an exempt person. An AR is an exempt person because the principal takes full responsibility for the AR's activities and for ensuring that the AR complies with the FCA's rules, which is set out in a written contract. The principal has to undertake sufficient checks to ensure that the AR is competent and financially stable, um, and they're responsible for the activities that the AR carries out, um, such as in respect of any advice that's given to customers um, and in respect of projects that they sell and arrange. Uh, and an AR is important in financial services as it's a structure that operates for investment advice, insurance brokers and mortgage brokers, and so it's widely used across the financial services sector. It also allows a cost-effective way for firms to comply with regulation without incurring the cost of being directly authorised, which may otherwise be passed on to customers. It also allows a broader range of providers in the market, which increases competition and it encourages innovation as it allows new businesses to trial new services whilst being supervised by their principals, so before they apply for SCA authorization. And it also has the benefit for consumers as it enables them to be protected by regulation in the same way as if they purchase products from a directly authorised firm. And uh, since the AR stretch has been introduced, there are now 40,000 ARs operating under 3,600 principal firms. So it's uh, a structure that's gained a lot of traction. So you talked us through there, Zoe, the relationship between the AR and the principal and how important it is to financial services um, and how widespread it is used as a structure. But how does it actually work in practice? So the AR structure works in practice by allowing firms to provide regulated advice and services to consumers without being directly authorised by the FCA. The directly authorised principle provides regulatory oversight of the AR, and there's usually an AR agreement between the AR and the principle, which sets out the scope of what the principle permits the AR to do, and the various supporting and other functions that the AR agrees to as part of that arrangement. The principal usually charges a fee to the AR in return for supervising the AR and taking on liability to third parties for losses which may arise from the AR services. And so the introduction of ARs has led to the development of financial advice networks. And this is where a number of ARs provide advice to consumers as part of a network. And the network principal has regulatory oversight of AR and provides a compliance services and complaints handling function. So you've talked through now the structure and how it works in practice, but what are the legal implications for both the AR and the principal of that structure? So the implications of the AR structure is that the principal is responsible for the activities of the AR, broadly provided that the AR acts within the scope of the agency provided to the AR. So, for example, if the AR agreement provides that the AR can advise on investments, but not UKIS, so unregulated collective investment schemes, and the AR does advise on UKIS investments, the principal can argue it is not responsible for the AR's advice on the UKIS investment as it did not agree to that. 
It's as important as customers that consider they have received uh, negligent advice can pursue the principal direct under Section 39 of the Financial Services and Markets Act for acts of the AR, but the principal can defend that claim on the basis that the AR had acted outside the scope of the agency it had given the AR, and so it's not responsible for that AR as a result. So as long as the principal has accepted responsibility for the AR's activities, the AR can carry out the regulated activities relatively independent from its principal. Uh, and this has led to ARs having evolved into a diverse range of business models. Um, and for those interested in the legal implications of the AR structure, then do look at George Smith's blog on the Sense decision a few years ago, which was an RPC case before the Court of Appeal on this very point. Um, so you've talked us through the structure, the legal implications. So let's get to the consultation itself. So why is the FCA consulting on appointed representative arrangements? The FCA is now questioning whether there's adequate protection for consumers when compared to those who are directly authorised by the FCA. And so as a result, the FCA is looking at whether it needs to move away from a one-size-fits-all approach to take into account the different risks that are posed by the wide range of AR structures. The FCA has identified risks arising from the AR uh, structure, such as where the principal has not carried out uh, sufficient due diligence before appointing an AR, um, or where the principal does not have adequate controls or resources in place in order to properly supervise the AR. And this can be particularly challenging where the principal does not carry out a regulated business, which is closely linked to that of the AR, or say where the AR is larger, so it can be demanding on the principal's resources and making sure that the AR complies with regulatory requirements. And then this may lead to detriment not being identified or acted on by principals. And so for that reason, the FCA has brought a consultation to address these risks and the potential harm. What is being proposed in the consultation? The consultation paper proposes changes such as requiring principals to carry out more detailed due diligence, so when they're taking on UARs, and to scrutinise the data provided in order to identify risks or issues, and also to have greater oversight of the ARs, so including monitoring more closely the ARs' activities to check that the AR is acting within the scope of its appointment, and also to provide ongoing reporting to the FCA, such as in respect of the ARs' activities and complaints data, and to, to proactively monitor the size and growth of AR's business. The consultation paper is also proposing that the principal uh, should check at least once a year that they have adequate controls and resources in place, uh, and that these are proportionate to the size of a principal's business. The FCA is also looking at introducing a requirement for the principal to carry out the same regulated activities as its ARs. The FCA is also mindful that with any changes made, that it does not want to lose the benefits that the AR uh, structure provides, such as in respect of competition, innovation and wider consumer access. So you've got the consultation there trying to balance competition and cost against wanting perhaps in the FCA's eyes, an increased amount of supervision by the principal over the AR, perhaps if you're being technical, saving the FCA a little bit of a job there. Um, so what kind of impact do you think it's going to have on the financial services industry and, and potentially in relation to their professional indemnity insurers, given this, in large part, increased amount of supervision that perhaps the FCA is looking at principals undertaking? So the proposed changes will impose greater responsibilities on principal firms when monitoring ARs, which may increase the scope for consumers to bring claims against principals alleging a failure of their duty to supervise when an AR causes harm. 
This may be a concern for, say, financial networks that already have good systems and controls in place, but who may still get rogue ARs who cause harm without their knowledge. But on the flip side, the proposed changes will help improve practices at some networks and lead to a higher standard um, in AR firms and better consumer protection. The FCA does recognise that the proposed changes will increase compliance costs for principals and that this may lead to principals deciding to cut down on the amount of ARs in their network. If ARs leave a the market, then this could reduce competition, which undercuts one of the main benefits of the AR um, structure. Equally, the cost of complying with any policy changes will be passed on to consumers, which could widen the advice gap and see consumers making decisions without taking financial advice. Um, the increased compliance costs may also result in an increase in professional indemnity insurance in what is already a hard market. Ultimately, it will be difficult to balance the interests of principals, ARs and consumers of any changes made. The FCA considers that the overall cost to firms implementing the proposal is low and that the costs will be proportionate to the benefits. But the increase in costs and responsibilities may be a concern for networks that have many ARs under its umbrella. The consultation closes on the 3rd of March, so we'll have to wait and see to what extent the FCA takes into account the costs of introducing these proposed additional requirements. Thank you, Zoe. As you say, we'll just have to wait and see what the FCA does with the consultation and how it goes forward and what kind of result it leads in terms of changes to the AR principal model and what kind of impact it has as a result on the market itself. So that just leaves me to say thank you to Karina and Zoe for kicking off 2022. RPC Radio. Radio. We hope you will join us again next month when we will be discussing the month's hot topics in the financial services sector. And please do click to subscribe to receive the monthly podcast as soon as it is available. Be sure to also check out other RPC publications at rpc.co.uk forward slash perspectives. Thank you to our guests today, as well as those behind the scenes at RPC who make this podcast possible.